This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And we're going to talk about The Ghost Pirates, a novel by William Hope Hodgson, first published in 1909. Which I think makes this one of the few was written in the correct order of publication because it's in the middle, right? <laughs> More or less, although um, so from the style of it, I, I I think it might be a bit bit later than <laughs> it's definitely near the near the it's definitely a more sophisticated written book than the Nightland, and I think mm. I think I'd argue it's actually um, due to the more dialogue. Uh, deeper characters and more tightly plotted than um, Blokes of Glen Carrig. I suspect it followed, he was wrote probably just after Blokes of Glen Carrig. At a guess, was <laughs> given that we have this strange grey area of the order of publication we've discussed previously. Mm-hmm. Um, I in I sent you a link to the the all the letters of H.P. Lovecraft that talk about Hodgson. And I noticed that the ghost pirate sort of gets short shrift compared to uh, practically everything else, even when he's complaining about the other books. <laughs> this one is one he sort of says uh, the least amount about. Um, however, uh, he in those letters, he also talks about the additions that he needs to or revisions he needs to make to uh, supernatural horror and literature, his massive essay about uh, the field. And how he definitely needs to add a little section on Hodgson. And so I've got that that bit from his uh, essay on uh, the Ghost Pirates. And I think it's a nice way of trying to figure out what the heck's going on in this book. It starts, uh, The Ghost Pirates is a powerful account of a doomed and haunted ship on its last voyage. And of the terrible sea devils of quasi-human aspect and perhaps the spirits of bygone buccaneers, that besiege it and finally drag it down to an unknown fate. With its command of maritime knowledge and its clever selection of hints and incidents suggestive of latent horrors in nature, this book at times reaches enviable peaks of power. (laughs) Which I can see the pull quote's going to be, reaches enviable peaks of power, right? (laughs) Definitely, definitely. (laughs) Which is a very Lovecraftian way of saying, there's good bits in there. (laughs) um i i see the reviews on goodreads are fairly favorable uh but what did you think of this book um i I really enjoyed this i mean um i listened to the uh librivox uh audiobook version um Mm -hmm. in fact it would have been in two chunks if i hadn't been listening to (laughs) the second uh chunk had been getting quite late at night and i thought i've I've got to be up in the morning and i had Mm -hmm. about an hour to go and i was tempted (laughs) but um I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a story that kind of, in many ways, it's it's not as jam-packed with incidents as, say, the Nightland um, or um, Boats of Glen Carrig. Um, it's more based around, you know, a fairly straightforward idea, and it's a mystery that he gradually um, reveals sort of, you know, onion layer style as the story goes on and just, you know, it builds it up to a climax. And um, it's, I can see why Lovecraft perhaps wasn't as taken with it. I mean, Lovecraft in those letters, he's very dismissive of the Karnaki stories. (laughs) Um, And I think that's kind of Lovecraft's thing was the big cosmic vistas. And, um, (laughs) you know, that's why he loved House on the Borderland. Uh, Whereas, I mean, I I think, as we're talking like kind of for a modern reader accessibility, the, the ghost pirates is, is very accessible and um, it's a straightforward story, but plenty kind of happens in it and there's some good characters and the mystery is intriguing. You know what I mean? I was kind of, I was getting to the last, I think that three or four chapters to go and it was like just under an hour. And I was going, I want to know what happens. It's, it's nearly mm-hmm. there, but I had to go to bed. It was really annoying. Um, but I had tremendous fun with it. I mean, I think, this one, you I mean you can tell Hodgson had had a career at sea because you really, 
what I liked about it, I think that the actual sort of central mystery and its unfolding is rather nice, but I think what really gives the book flavor is you really get a sense of what it was like to be a working sailor, you know, taking mm. different commissions on different ships and, you know, fitting in with a new crew and, you know, the little sort of hierarchies and power structures and kind of cliques mm-hmm. and alliances. And, you know, it's it's tremendous fun. You know, it's kind of like you can really sort of go on a little ocean voyage in yesteryear through this book. It's, you know, it's that marvellous kind of a little bit of time travel that good literature can give you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that one of the complaints that people had on Goodreads was about the language of, you know, just not knowing what all the parts of the ship are. Um, <laughs> indeed, this is the poopiest book <laughs> of uh, Hodgson's. It's got more, there's more talk about what's going on on the poop <laughs> than most people probably know what's going on. Um, you know, it went over the taff rail. Well, if you don't know what the taff rail is, it it, it will be a bit confusing, I think. But um, uh, it does definitely do the thing that Lovecraft loves, which is um, get you into a mood, right? It starts off this – they were laughing that it was a ghost, ghostly haunted ship, right? Um, and it is. Uh, but the ghosts don't act in – in an uh, at the end, I, I don't know what's going on. Um, but I did go back and reread um, uh, from Beyond the Lovecraft story mm. that I think is probably the closest to it. Lovecraft himself, um, in those letters, he he mentions uh, Blackwood, and I believe he even mentions the Willows, and that is kind of the feeling you get. I think. Uh, with these ghost pirates and the ghost ships, I, I'm not sure what's going on in this. So, so I want to speculate about that with you. Um, what do you think? Um, well, for me, it just feel kind of I don't think it's so much a haunting as um, an intrusion by otherly other forces. It's kind of um, I find it interesting, kind of the the way. Hodgson kind of uh, not reveals it, but how, how it, the events unfold, because it begins with just shadows being seen. And then it progresses to people like you're seeing strange figures and then people disappearing. And then you can see these great shadowy ships pursuing the vessel under the water. And then, you know, finally it kind of, the veil is worn that thin between the worlds or dimensions that the, uh, these strange otherworldly you know, beings, you know, storm the ship and drag it to wherever they're from. And it, it is kind of, you know, kind of the, there's a sense of real sort of cat and mouse of that is, it's not just a ghost. This is a kind of predation in a way of, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it marks out the ship and then they start having trouble. You know, they can't see land. They can't signal to another ship. They're of their sort of, their ship is slipping into their world. And the more they, it's slowly the worlds collide and the ship, you know, sort of drifts in dimensions and, you know, eventually it'll be swallowed up by them. I think Hodgson's yeah. very canny not just to have them as kind of stereotypical, you know, yo-ho-hoing pirate skeletons. <laughs> they don't, I, I mean, just the word, having the word pirates in there, gives you uh, I and mean, having the word ghost and having the word pirates gives you uh, a whole lot of baggage that when you bring to it uh this story it sort of has to get thrown overboard and jettison does it where right <laughs> because it doesn't fit um i don't think they are not i don't think they are ghosts like what the hell this ship is got something going on with it right it's not it's it's the ship that's haunted. Although there was a, I think a maybe a hint uh, that it was not just only the ship. Um, but I, I I like the name of the ship. I, I I couldn't find it in the text. I didn't hear it in the text itself. But in the Wikipedia entry, it says the survivor of the ship, the guy who's telling the story, uh, says that the ship's name is Mort Zestus. 
<laughs> which is um, loving death, right? Very yes, death. indeed. Yeah. yeah. I think you, the, only, uh, you only get it in the appendix at the end. Ah, okay. I think, yeah. Mm. Um, and the um, the the ship that picks him up is the Sangier, <laughs> which is the bloodier, um, which is pretty fun too. Um, but uh, there there's a character who um, early in early in the book we as they're getting on, I guess um, he says, "I'm going to get my money out of this ship." <laughs> Right, I'm gonna get my money out of this ship, and I thought that that was a really interesting idea. It's like, well, isn't he just hired on as a hired hand? What what does he mean? I'm gonna get my money out of this ship. It's almost like everybody on board the ship got onto it. In a, it's sort of like, um, you know, that's there's a great scene in the original Aliens where they're, uh, I, I guess it could be, it could even be you know, sort of indirectly inspired, but they're sitting around talking about uh, what they're going to do with their pay when they get back. Yes. Before, Mm. before the, you know, (laughs) things go really badly, but you know, they, they're not super enthusiastic about what problems are going on below or what, you know, what that thing got loose. And, but, but even so (laughs) they're going to get their pay (laughs) and they're going to be so happy when they get their pay. And then, of course, things start to go awry. And in a sense, I mean, other than it being, you know, a physical, real uh, monstrous creature that really is very tangible in that movie, it's kind of the same story in that it's a ship that is uh, attacked and haunted by a thing from outside. And uh, in that case, we, we also have the uh, a sort of a bubbling below the surface theme that I think is happening here, um, which is sort of the corporatism problem, right? This is not a a Navy ship. This is a commercial ship. And so all the problems that the ship has had are sort of left out of the um, uh, history of the guys climbing on board the ship. They come on to do a job, not to... It's not their nation, you know, like when you're on your ship, it's it's a it's your nation that is fighting. If you're in the Navy, uh, your patriotism is what puts you on that ship. This is not that. This is a commercial venture. And so when they uh, when things start to go wrong, there are rumblings that they're going to have a mutiny. Right. Well, this is it. This is what's interesting is you have kind of you have the the mysterious events, but then you've got like a, a second dramatic sort of string in the mm-hmm. fact that it, the officers and the, you know, the, uh, the senior seafarers <laughs> are very keen to keep it all hushed up. And there's kind of like a cover up story going on, mm. which is, a uh, which, you know, something else Jessup has to contend with on top of, you know, the strange happenings he's witnessing. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I thought at the end of kind of, you know, Jessup very bitterly goes, yes, these things happen. You know they happen, and you're not going to write it up in the logbook. I'll tell you what you're going to write. Uh-huh. You're going to write this bland, blah, 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 no, everything's fine kind of statement. And that's mm-hmm. interesting. So um, I seem to remember from somewhere that kind of for this kind of setup with this kind of ship, I mean, the crew would, you know, get paid when they got to the other end and the cargo was delivered. Um, but also... You had the matter of ship's captains of such vessels would take out insurance for the voyage. Mm -hmm. And the insurance quotes will be based on things like an inspection of the ship and of the captain's logs to reveal if there's real, if there's any kind of risks or problems with the vessel. And that's why these sort of things never go in the captain's logs, (laughs) Uh, because it would, you know, jeopardize the uh, financial viability of you know, a future voyages. It's a, it's very, it's very fascinating the way, um, I say you, you can tell Hodgson worked in the Navy, um, you know, and had, you know, a long career at sea because you really get that kind of, those little touches that I think, you know, a landlubber writing this story wouldn't occur to them in the first place to put in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, in fact, I, I was thinking it, it was very regrettable that Brian's not here. Cause I, I have this whole theory of 
why uh, you know Marx Marx writes his his uh, his great works in England is I think in large part because um, the relationship that a crew a, you know a commercial crew has to its ship is kind of like the relationship um, that he's talking about uh, Marx is talking about in uh, the means of production right any individual sailor cannot build a ship like like the one that we're sailing on mm. um, it has to be made by a corporation which is a bunch of investors who get together and say let's make some money shipping some stuff across the ocean but they're not uh, inspired to you know take care of their ship in the same way that uh, uh, a person is inspired to take care of their home they're inspired to make money mm. which means they hire uh, the captain who they think can do the job they hire uh, the lowest rate pay they can think can do the job and when things go wrong um, oh well but we don't want to invest too much money in a ship that might sink anyways so the the fact that you know a commercial consideration of putting into port and abandoning the ship is not going to be in the captain's best interest <laughs> is because not because you know he's thinking of the best needs of the crew this is this is why um I, a few years ago i read uh uh about a lot about pirates like actual pirates so i bring a lot to this uh this story in the in the lulls between the you know the ghosts climbing on board the ship or the sea devils i guess climbing on board the ship i was thinking about the language that the the sailors are using you know um mate is not just a title on the ship but it's also a salutation yes by yeah. one sailor to another mm -hmm. and it reminds us of comrade right uh it's all for the greater glory comrade right whether you're friends or not on the ship <laughs> you're a mate and whether you're you know you love being in communist russia or not um you're a comrade whether you want to or not um and so that that language of we're all in this together um is why uh i think it you can see the fact that they almost have a um a mutiny on what shouldn't be a mutinous ship you know, because they're all commercial, they're, none of them have been impressed into service, right? Um, how 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 does this happen? Why were there so many pirates? It's because you've got this corporate um, way of mm. maybe trying to control uh, a group of people who don't like the way things are being run and want the means of production to to be used in the way they want it to, right? So you just take over the ship and. Is that what's going on? Like, if we are doing this as, you know, a Freudian reading of this book, are those ghosts, the ghosts of sailors who, um, you know, are are they are they literally ghosts? Are they from another time period in history and we're seeing sort of a reflection of that? Or are they um, something else? It, 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 it's so undercooked as to what is actually happening that I don't know. But I, I, I'm because I'm doing so much work trying to figure it out in my head. I'm like, oh, this is a rich book, even though I think it's so little description of, like the 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 Sydney Syme uh, illustration. I I don't. Did you see that one? Yes. This book? Yes. I think that that's a, a a very good picture because even though there's a lot of these ghosts or whatever they are, the sea devils. Um, they don't really, we can't really tell what they look like, even though there's so many of them and they're overwhelming the crew. Well, this is it. We only get description of pale eyes. Yeah. And that's, and that's what you have in the same drawing. You just have these kind of almost sort of mummified figures in which only these like staring pale eyes are visible. I think that's an interesting point. I think kind of, uh, are they, are they, the ghost pirates are kind of, I don't know, a projection of the crew's submerged, mutinous, collective subconscious. I mean, you're saying about your real-life piracy, it's very interesting if you actually you know, look into it. They, they weren't just, like, seafaring criminals pirates. Their, their boats were kind of, uh, you know, they had their own rules, the pirate articles. Yeah. And the pirate articles, every man gets an equal share. Yeah, it's, it's communism. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. communism and democracy, right? Mm. The, 
In fact, it parallels uh, the Russian Revolution-style communism so closely that they have, you know, the the captain doesn't have power except during, you know, uh, war, right? During during exactly, an attack. Yes, yes. And the you know the quartermaster, who is also an elected official, the guy who distributes the 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 goods, right? He has equal power to all the other. Uh, even to the captain, he can overrule the captain on certain things, right? Mm. This is not a um, uh, a top-down, you know, first mate, second mate, uh, able seaman uh, sort of structure. This is a, we're all in this together. This is all our ship. It's all our nation, right? And, and so in these, you know, the hatred that, <laughs> that um, Hodgson seems to have had for his he really wanted to get out of uh the not the navy but the uh commercial sailing it it, it it's not clear why right it, it, i haven't read anything that said it was because i was so badly abused although it did say that he was abused right um but is it you know because the captain's getting rich and the the owners of the ship are getting rich and he's getting you know, sunburns and and uh, endless labor. It's not <laughs> clear, but in this story, we do get a sense that the uh, even though if they're not maltreated, they're just not treated right. They're not considered in the uh, in the factor, and and because the the ghost sea devils are so enigmatic, um, it just feels like it could be something like that. I don't know. It's it, it's spooky. Uh, it's a very interesting sort of sub layer to the tale. I mean, it, it, you do get a sense of kind of the, um, the you know the frustrations of the crew of that that you know many won't speak up because they know they won't be listened to. And mm. a couple of times, you know, he refers to the old major, that old bully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> just. Accepted. Yeah, that, that everybody agrees. It's not, and, and he's quite surprised when the captain actually takes a hand and will actually lead the expedition to you know to light up the ship, and you know that that's kind of a significant thing. And oh, right, we are in trouble now if the captain's actually mm. got off his backside and he's going to get his hands dirty. Um, but also, you know, he has some respect for him that the you know the old man, as he calls him, is going to bother. Whereas, you know, you get the impression of the captains, well, the devil's take them all. As long as... But it's also interesting. He's not in his cabin drinking, right? No, it no. Was... It's also, I thought, it was very interesting um, in the light of the, you know, the angle we're looking at this, that so many of the crew, the slang for a ship is this packet. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is, you know, it, 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 it's not a, a vehicle it is a parcel that is going to be delivered. Yeah. They're in it. <laughs> yes. Right? Mm. The ship is just the packaging of the of the cargo, and the crew are just the wrapping on the parcel. Yeah. They're they're not they're like glorified mailmen, except they 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 can't abandon the parcel, right? Mm. It's um it's spooky. Uh, I I found the section where he describes his. Jessup describes his theory as to what's going on, why the ship is being haunted. Um, so I, I want to read that and just see what we can get out of it. Because um, it struck me as, uh, I mean, I don't know how he got these insights, but I like them. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it's it's kind of like, um, sort of like the language of um, a spiritualism, you know. Yes. Uh, yeah. Somebody says he, he's he's uh, you're closed-minded, so you you can't see it. Uh, <laughs> that always said about um, somebody they they try and do spiritualism with a skeptic in the room, and is oh, I'm getting bad vibrations here. It won't work. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes like this. Well, I formed a bit of a theory that uh, that seems wise one minute and cracked the next. Of course, it's as likely as to be wrong, all wrong, but. It, it's the only thing that seems to fit in what the all the beastly things we've had lately. And then he uh, goes back and forth and he says, Well, the thing I saw came up out of the sea and went back into the sea. My idea is that the ship is open to be boarded by these those things, I explained. What are they? Of course, I don't know. They look like men in lots of ways. 
but well, the Lord knows what what's in the sea. Though we don't want to go imagining silly things, of course. And then again, you know, it seems fat-headed calling anything silly. That's how I keep going, in a sort of blessed circle. I don't know a bit whether they're flesh and blood or whether they're what we should call ghosts or spirits. And, yeah, it's open to the, like, in a way that other ships he's been on have never been, like, what happened on this ship that opened it up? That's a good question. I think there's, a, there's an overlap here with um, one of the later Karnaki stories, the haunted Jarvi, mm-hmm. um, where you have a ship which um, uh, Karnaki describes as becoming sort of tainted, and as it's out at sea, uh, it attracts these supernatural vibrations that manifest in um, a strange fog and these lights that get closer and closer <laughs> to the ship and seem to want to consume it. And that seems to be seems to be sort of playing with similar ideas in this of that it is something about the ship of that as a uh, not a haunting but say this there's a a crack in it somehow <laughs> that uh, mm-hmm. you know it is it is kind of like a there's a little tear in you know the fabric of reality or time mm-hmm. or or dimensions you know whatever that you know say that. That means it's you know it's it's you know a sitting duck for these otherworldly buccaneers. Yeah, what is the what is the go- the goal of the sea devils? Is it to take the ship? Because I guess they do do that. Um, but are they probing it? What are they doing up in the you know in the uh, rigging? Are they trying to change the course? They investigating it. It's it, it's there's four ships uh, under the water, right? The four ghost ships. It's it's like is this aliens? <laughs> <laughs> aliens from the ocean? Are they like literally sea devils, like the you know the Doctor Who sea devils? <laughs> um, you know, are they uh, um, <laughs> deep ones? <laughs> because the the description of the of them is so minimal. That they're the shape of a man. They have two round eyes. Uh, they 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 they're not normal. So um, the uh, that description of you know having it a tear in reality um, or the parallel reality of something that made me think of um, from beyond. Now, I'm not sure the pub. I know the publication data from beyond, but I'm not sure about when it was written. But I would assume it was uh, after Lovecraft had read this and uh, all the other books by Hodgson that he had read. Um, the letters when he was talking about when he was reading it were in 34, and from beyond is 38. Um, and there. Uh, I re- in rereading from beyond, I, I'm loving uh, the scientist's name. Do you remember his name? Crawford Tillingast. Right, Tillingast, and it sort of fits with this, right? He's he's turning up ghosts. Right? <laughs> he's, he's tilling the earth, pulling out ghosts that are in there. I love it. Um, so he's he's invented a machine, um, very mad scientist style, uh, that can uh it wakes up vestigial sensory organs in your body and allows you to see reality that is there but unseen normally um and he he goes he talks a bit about uv uh, ultraviolet and how you know we can't see it but it's definitely there um but i wanted to um read the description of how he, he explains how his technology is working because it's kind of similar. Um, It starts like this. What do we know of the world and universe about us? Our means of receiving impressions are absurdly few and our notions of surrounding objects infinitely narrow. We see only as we, we see things only as we are constructed to see them and can gain no idea of their absolute nature. With five feeble senses, we pretend to comprehend and bound the complex. Sorry, 
comprehend the boundlessly complex cosmos, yet other beings with a wider, stronger, or different range of senses might not only see very differently the things we see, but might see and study whole worlds of matter and energy and life, which lie close at hand, yet can never be detected, with the senses we have. I have always believed that such strange, inaccessible worlds exist at our very elbows, and now I believe I have found a way to break down the barriers. So, the machine, when you turn it on and you sit near it, it turns you on to things that are there that you normally couldn't see. Um, But, of course, in the story, it also... um, it's not benign, right? Um, and it's, it, I was thinking like if this novel was to be, you know, worked into a TV show or a movie today, they would explain it by the cargo, right? I, I don't remember what they're even carrying on this ship. But if, if uh, they were doing this today, we wouldn't be satisfied as, as modern readers um, with this sort of uh, unsettling non-explanation that we have or we're grasping for so they would say you know it's it's a interdimensional uh material from uh atomic tests that they're trying to take to a burial site in australia or something right it's some sort of material that's haunting the that's causing the ship to become haunted or something like that. And I I would like oh yeah okay that makes sense if if it was like that um could it be the cargo do you think um it may be the cargo i mean that would be a good mcguffin <laughs> yeah i mean well he's uh, to try and throw it overboard or something right? well that's it yes yeah that'd be one way to just to you know to solve it but i mean they, hodgson goes for the perhaps the more you know intriguing thing it is the ship itself that something has gone wrong with the ship somehow mm. that lays it open to this uh, I was just sort of looking up. Actually, From Beyond was actually written 1920. Wow. Yes. So well before um, uh, yeah, Lovecraft had read, read them. So, but you can see why he likes that stuff, though. Oh, definitely. I mean, Lovecraft was big on this, <laughs> this idea of other dimensions. I mean, I think you, you get that coming through perhaps most strongly you know, later at Dreams in the Witch House. Mm-hmm. They have this idea of you, you know, people begin to be able to perceive through the uh, through ordinary space time and see other things, and you know that makes them vulnerable <laughs> to attack. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just looking actually at Lovecraft's kind of biography of a, a rather list of things he wrote <laughs> of things kind of post thirty four that might be influenced of. Um, I'm not not seeing an well, awful lot. This, uh, yeah, I'm uh, thirty. Uh, thirty four um, is pretty late. He's only got a couple of years left to live, um, and he did do a ton earlier. But I I, I like um, I the more I read from Beyond, I've read it a few times. The more I like it as like a a great story, um, not because of the the way it's written, but rather. Um, by what it's talking about. And uh, I I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, there is a, a very loose adaptation of it recently called The Banshee Chapter. Oh, I've not seen that. I've seen the 1980s. Oh. Yeah, that, that one I've only seen the trailer for, and it looks really scary. <laughs> it's a lot more physical, fleshy sort of scary than... Uh, uh, well, well, that, throws, that throws in actually a whole Freudian subtext. <laughs> it, uh, it is very Freudian looking mm. from the uh, <laughs> from the uh, trailer. Um, the um, the Banshee chapter uh, starts off very nicely with the president of the United States, in this case Clinton, admitting that the United States had done some terrible experiments. Um, it it's makes us. The way it's well edited, it makes us think that uh, it's referring to the experiments that we're about to find out about in in the movie. Of course, they're referring to different experiments um, done, you know, against people's will. Uh, well, I think it was for testing um, uh, what figuring out what what ravages uh, a venereal disease causes on people when they don't know they have it. 
<laughs> it's like horrible, uh, you know, sort of military style experiments <laughs> or whatever conducted completely unethically that he has to apologize for. But in sort of the ap- language of apology, he doesn't really say exactly what happens. And so it fits uh, very nicely in into the opening of the movie. And uh, it, it takes the pretty much the same premise as From Beyond, except it's afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much a... Uh, a sort of a radio transmitter as it is a drug that um, like the LSD experiments that, you know, also could have been the ones he was apologizing for um, allow you to see um, things that other people can't see a reality just below the surface, but also having taken that drug, you become sort of a beacon to those other things mm-hmm. in our parallel reality. And so combined with um, uh, the fact that when they get close to you, you know, the radios and television start emitting signals. Um, it, it, it It's a very spooky film. I think it's very, very well done. Um, it's kind of a found footage film as well. I don't think it actually is in that, but it uses a lot of the style of that. Oh, right. Yes. Which is very nice. I think I wasn't a big fan of that genre when it sort of took off, but I've come to like it a lot more. Um, And I think this is kind of a found document sort of uh, thing. I was thinking throughout the entire novel that it wasn't, it, this is one of the few Hodgson novels, or I guess there's only four, right? Of the other three, they, they all have a story within a story, a framing story of some kind. But this ha- is a framing story. It has one at the end, and we just don't see it, right? That's right, just, yes. Uh, it's, uh, it's quite like the looks of Glenn Carrick. It's kind of <laughs> – it's a document that, you know, believe it or not, folks, mm-hmm. you get to the end of it. And the timing of it as well. Um, uh, there's a mention of a radio, I think, near the end, um, or a telegraph. So it's not like a period piece in the same way that uh, our other nautical adventure was. Um, I don't. I, I don't know what the prospects of making this into a film or um, or a television show. I don't think that it would happen, but I think it might make a really great audio drama given how creepy it is to have that you know the sound of a ship at night mm. and somebody describing what he's seeing climbing over the edge um in that same way as you know reading the book on the page it leaves it to your imagination what things look like i think you know two guys whispering about what they're seeing in the water <laughs> uh you know see that figure climbing the rigging um I think that that'd be amazingly creepy. I think it'd work very well as a radio drama. I think, I think in the hands of the right director, it could work on the screen. Although I can see Hollywood probably wouldn't want to touch it as it, it's lacking any sort of big set pieces where the effects mm. boys can go berserk. And I think once you put it on the screen, you have the problem of you've got to show something for the figures, but how do you do it? You've got to, because then you sort of start crystallizing what they are in people's <laughs> minds, depending which way you go, you know, what, what visualization you choose to do. But I, I could see it being done well with just kind of like, you know, literally just shadowy shapes where you can maybe only see a set of eyes and still keep mm-hmm. them, still show them, but be indistinct. But, you know, be enough to give, give a viewer a good jolt. Um, <laughs> uh, it can be done. Um, I just actually found the uh, Haunted Jarvie. Um, mm-hmm. And I've just found the uh, the bit where Kanaki explains what caused this that vessel to um, become prey to supernatural forces. Well, Kanaki, <laughs> well, replied Kanaki, in my opinion, she was a focus. That is the technical term, which I can best explain by saying that she possessed the attractive vibration that is the power to draw to her any psychic waves in the vicinity, much in the same way as a medium. The way in which the vibration is acquired, to use the technical term again, is of course purely a matter of supposition. She may have developed it during the years, owing to a suitability of conditions, or it may have been in her, of her is a better term, 
from the very day her keel was laid. I mean, the direction in which she lay, the condition of the atmosphere, the state of electrical tensions, the very blows of the hammers and the accidental combining of materials suited to such an end, all might tend to such a thing. Hmm. It's kind of, it's like, with these kind of that vibration is almost, you know how you can make a magnet by hammering metal at a certain <laughs> degree? It's kind of that kind of idea of... They say it might be something that just accumulated with the, you know, with the, I don't know, the layers of history or past space time on the ship. Or mm-hmm. it, was, it was just kind of just a fluke of it. it was just made in a certain way that made it somehow magnetic. I think, I think, I think in Ghost Pirates, the, the idea, it's, you know, Jessup's concept that it's not a person, it's nothing on the ship. It is the ship that has, you know, become sort of magnetized as it were that he's drawing the ghost pirates to them that sounds that sounds really right to me um now it's it sort of, it fits with the the period too you know that that period where everybody was going to seances and uh such and those, it was, it's uh, really got the rise of you know electrical technology as well mm-hmm. and it was you know i mean hodgson uses it you know the latest gizmos a lot in the Karnaki stories as well. So mm-hmm. you have that interesting blend of sort of science and the supernatural coming through. There's, um, uh, I started reading, um, a book on recommendation by Mark Jaretsky of, uh, uh, the BPRD, uh, plague of frogs series. Have you read this? Uh, I've read a few of them a while ago. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's the Hellboy mm. spinoff mm. sort of, um, Bureau of Paranormal Research and Development, I guess it, it is. And in in that first volume, there is a story about um, a ship that's being haunted uh, as they're crossing the ocean. Um, and there's sharks, like, endlessly circling the ship in a very strange way. And then they, they dive overboard to to try and figure out what's going on when the ships pass this area and they go down to the bottom of the sea. And of course they find millions of bodies of, of, uh, slaves who have been (laughs) haunting the, 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 the ocean bottom, um, you know, tied up in chains, uh, thrown overboard when, you know, a anti-pirate ship comes by and tries to stop the pirate trade or whatever, or they just died on board the ship and they threw them overboard um, we don't we don't have um, that. This ship isn't that old. It is a sailing boat in the time of uh, of transition, right? It's it's. I get the sense that the ship is literally on its last voyage, right? We're gonna get our. I'm gonna get my money out of this ship. Is the idea right? That comes up multiple times. It's almost like you know, it's this ship is done, sort of thing. And so it's got. Uh, a number of trips in its yes. past. Mm. Um, it's not what, viable to have it repaired anymore on the company. Right. Just run it, well, not into the ground, but into the waves, as it were. Exactly. Right? And so, you know, below below decks, there's endless um, uh, sort of detritus of previous voyages, old sails and all that stuff. But because it's it's not a slave, it's you know it's not from the time of slaving. It's not that old. It can't be that. But I do get this sort of, I think that idea that it's a sort of a Marxist um, uh, resentment of the treatment of the like it's absorbed the sort of the the um, resentment of the crew and sort of not a, a major resentment, just sort of a a simmering resentment that every crewman has ever brought to the ship. Um, it's it could be almost like that's what's causing it, and so it's attractive to these. Again, that word pirates, right? Mm. It's not like they're attacking the ship for its cargo. We don't seem to. We don't even know what the cargo is. It could be anything, as far as I know. Um, it could be you know letters. Who knows what it is? Um, it seems like it, this is like. Uh, pulling, you know, join us, pulling us down into the sea and joining us in our fleet of ghost ships, right? Whatever it is. And I think that there's, it's, 
the more you think about it, the more haunting the story is because of that very um, lack of concreteness. At the uh, when you finish the end of um, of the Willows by Algernon Blackwood, I get that same sense of uh, I don't know what the hell's going on, but I'm deeply afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this works in that same mine of feeling. It, it's just very effective. Well, this is, I mean, in the preface to the original edition, um, which is very brief, Hodgson says this, this book completes a trilogy along with Blokes of Glen Carrick and House on the Borderland uh, in that they share, quote, certain conceptions that have an elemental kinship. Uh, and it is kind of, you can see there is parallels with the Blokes of Glen Carrick. I mean, Glen Carrick are prey to <laughs> pirates of a sort by the end mm-hmm. um though from a more distinct and uh, specified you know earthly variety whereas here you have the same idea of kind of uh here instead of a house that has you know become home to a rift in the laws mm-hmm. of reality it's the actual ship itself mm-hmm. um it's a magnet yeah. as you were saying right it tracks it mm. i mean i think kind of I mean, I love House on the Borderlands, but it re- really does fling open the door wide and go, here you are, cosmic visions. Do you want some? Mm-hmm. Do you want some more? Have another shuffle load. Have more, more, more. And you, you just, you know, it's like a kaleidoscope, you know, where it piles is. on scene upon scene of strange vision after strange vision. This, it's more like the door opens a crack and you get a glimpse of something and you can mm-hmm. see there's a shape and a purpose, but you can't make out what it quite what it is. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's just that kind of you get enough to know there is another world of some description that's intruding that there is other forces, and the fact that he doesn't specify what they are, I think, make it in many ways more interesting because, you know, then you start speculating afterwards, going, "What the hell was that? You know, mm-hmm. what did they want? What was the purpose? You know, I mean, I do like the kind of I do have the idea that the fact there's a f- not just one sort of shadowy galleon, there's actually four. And mm-hmm. I think there is that idea, it's the ship they want. They want another vessel. And mm-hmm. this one's been marked out and has become attractive to them. I, I was trying to visualize what that looks like, too, right? They, they said there's the, the four ships below us, right? It's like, what are they, like, mirror? Are they upside down in the water? Are they, you know, like, mirroring uh, ships on the surface? Because... Uh, I don't think ships sail that well under the, under the sea, right? <laughs> so whatever the hell is going on, just visualizing it is is shocking. And um, uh, this is from 1909, but um, we're we're in the period the the right period for uh, thinking about the Red Scare, right? That they're going to come here and take what we have worked so hard for, right? Um, the the fact that you know the the Red Scare is about communists taking over the country, doing what what we will uh, see them as sort of you can understand why they would want to do it because they're liberating their fellows, right? Mm. It's it's like the the slave ships when they have a rebellion, they don't just like say let's all go home. They say well, why don't we free some other slaves, right? It's like the Spartacus rebellions too, right? They don't just say, you know, screw these guys. They say, well, let's go from house to house, killing the masters and freeing the slaves. Um, The the thing is, is the crew doesn't seem to be as much, you know, into it as the, as the, uh, the ghosts or the sea devils are, you know, it's like, I don't think they want to go, but, once you know you're you're liberated are they is there a fifth ship now in that fleet well quite possibly i mean um and then when i thought about the sort of the ghost ships in the water at first i kind of sort of thought oh, well are these, the, the shape of a ship sailing beneath them but then mm-hmm. the more i thought about it and the more kind of uh the descriptions you get of the figures i more got the idea of um there are four ships on the sea following them that are invisible mm-hmm. and but you can still see their shadows yeah that's what i was thinking <laughs> um and 
it's a kind of, it's just like a fascinating sort of interdimensional kind of idea of um, just as you know they can't signal vessel earthly vessels and you know Jessup says you know there's no point putting for land because by all you know from what everything's happened I doubt we'll be able to see the coast right and this idea of the kind of that they're it's only at the end they get near enough for actually to be overwhelmed and <laughs> and pulled down yeah yeah so. It's a spooky one. It's one of those because I think the only way, I think Hodgson, Hodgson realized, the only way you could reveal more about the ghost pirates and is to have someone go with them and see, you know, what's the other side of the veil, as it were. And, yeah. And I think, you know, you're certainly no stranger to, um, you know, if he wanted to show you something, he, he would, and in great detail. <laughs> but I, I think, think he realized he was probably the story had more power if, you don't know and you know you don't know really you know did they just slay the men or have they are they now you know working a different passage in god mm-hmm. knows where in some leather dimension ah, right um it, it i was thinking that if neil gaiman was to you know take this book as his in, point of inspiration we would definitely follow that young crewman it'd have to be a very young crewman under the sea right mm-hmm. not just following the uh the, the survivor, but seeing where they go and what they do in their undersea version of the reality. It's it, the thing is is the surface of the sea is a barrier between a world uh, that we can dip into, but are you know not native to, and we scrape along the, that surface in the same way that I think Lovecraft is doing in his description of. Uh, from beyond, right? That there's a whole other world beneath or uh, at in our world that we just don't have much contact with, right? The, the 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 power of nautical ghost stories is sort of in that liminal space between uh, an a- ocean of air and an ocean of water. Yes, indeed, very much so. Of um, I mean, you know, water is always a liminal place in folklore whether it's been seas or rivers or bridges <laughs> it's, it's where two elements meet <laughs> strange things may intrude the 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 fact that the the sea devils climb over the rail of the ship they're coming out of the ocean right they climb up into the rigging they <laughs> they climb back down over the rail into the sea it's like they're an inverted frogman version of <laughs> Of our world, you know, sailing the same seas, but with uh, a reverse. Uh, uh, it it would be very interesting to see if you know if Hodgson had done a sketch as to what the guy's seeing over the edge. Is the ship inverted mm. so that you see the hull upside down? Is it look like a a ship like we would imagine? Are those sails like fins rather than <laughs> right? What is going on there? Because if you're underwater. There doesn't seem to be any reason why you would need to float near the surface uh, to do transportation, right? The reason we do it is because uh, it's easier to move heavy objects over water than it is over land. So <laughs> I don't think the analogy can work perfectly. They are not, you know, um, the H.G. Wells in the abyss uh, monsters, right? The mm. sea, sea people. Um, in doing their own trade routes. That's not what it is exactly. And yet, you can't say it isn't either because they're not well enough described. Well, it's one of those, I think, for any sort of screen adaptation, how you portray those <laughs> the shadow ships really will put a, a big spin on how the audience will interpret it, I think. I mean... Absolutely. Um, you know, you can have the, the idea it is a literal shadow and the ships are invisible, which that's fun. But I think mm-hmm. equally fun, the idea of a kind of the ocean itself is kind of um, like a membrane or a mirror and the, mm. and the ships are sailing upside down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's that kind of strange mirror world beneath the wave that's, you know, where they're climbing up out of it and they're going to pull the ship down to their side. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mean, that's, that's equally fascinating. And, and it look equally good on on screen as well if you mm-hmm. um yeah in the covers of the various editions of the book you know the people have their interpretation 
Um, often they just go with, you know, what the title <laughs> makes them think of rather than what's in the book. So you see like like a, a pirate captain sort of ghostly with a cutlass and a, you know, a skull and crossbones on his, on his cap. Um, and he's like, well, that's not exactly what, <laughs> what's described in the book. Um, but whatever you, you see when you see through the eyes of Jessup, um, is probably, we can't have it collapse in the way when we are visualizing it here. Just thinking about, you know, a fishy version of a, of a pirate captain doesn't, you know, it's, that's, that interpretation makes us lose so much of what is going on here. And it is all that mood effect. I think this is a pretty terrific um, mood piece. It doesn't make me feel like when I read the, you know, the house on the borderland, I'm like blown away by the cosmic vistas and the, and the, what the hell's going on with those pigmen, right? <laughs> um, it doesn't have the, uh, the stiltifying language of, um, the other two, the, uh, uh, the, one set in the future Earth, written by a 17th century gentleman, and it doesn't have the uh, the sort of eight, fake 18th century language of the other. But um, it feels this feels like uh, it is actually shorter. I think it's the shortest of the four, too, right? Uh, I, uh, I think I think it's uh, it's probably a tie between this and House on the Borderland. Oh, his house um, in the borderland. Oh, look, well, that's, fa- that's fairly short. I mean, wow. been, I've got two paperback it's editions. It's been a long time that, since I read it. That are quite quite slim. I think both have the feeling of kind of that are uh, they're almost like extended novellas. Mm. Whereas I think Nightland is definitely I am a novel. You know, <laughs> you, monstrous. If you have a hardback of this, you'll get a good workout holding it to read it. Uh, yeah, uh, Glenn Carrig is somewhere in the middle. I mean, that's. It's nine hours or something, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, this clock's in, what is it, about just over three just, hours? Just uh, four, four mm. yeah, something like that. Four or five. Um, yeah, I, I, I wish there was more. I was reading the the Wikipedia entry, and um, there is one other uh, novel that he wrote. Uh, the problem is, is it's not finished, mm. um, which is rather annoying. <laughs> Because I, I I would I mean I think he could have been one of the most famous writers in the 20th century had he lived longer, don't you think? Uh, very much so. I mean, he died what uh, 29? No, but he was born 18. Uh, no, 18, 18. He died in the war. Yeah, yeah. 1918, he died. He was. The but the name of his unfinished novel is hilarious. It's Captain Dang. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it! We didn't get it. Well, see, he did write a lot of just more um, straightforward seagoing stories. Uh, I mean, he had a whole series of with the Captain Jat stories and the Captain mm-hmm. Jolt stories and a whole other set set in the Sargasso Sea as well of. Um, yeah, he was he was a prolific story, a short story writer, but the only only the four novels. Mm. It's uh, and I guess you know you can collect the Karnakis, and there's a number of ones that can be connect, collected. But I'm uh, I'm kind of sad that there's no more to read in the novels. Well, it's one of those things. I think had had he not died in the Great War, because um, he you know when war broke out, he was you know, finally achieving a degree of success as a writer. I mean, the Kanaki stories were very popular and, mm-hmm. you know, you'd found a market, you know, um, and evidently if we, we go with the uh, inverse <laughs> writing order of the published novels, it was a case he'd sold all his later novels and then there was an appetite for more and he had other novels in his writer's trunk to dust off and in the meantime was selling short stories to magazines. And I so say, had he lived, I think, you know, I think, you know, the, the 1920s, you know, the dawn of sort of the pulp era proper, mm. you'd have really found a market and a home and, and you know, a fair bit of acclaim, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, he's one of those writers where he, you know, he's coming out of the 19th century, but also very much embracing the 20th century and, and weaving the past and the present and what he sees 
interesting in the future together in his fiction. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you're you're doing uh, all the Karnaki stories. Are you going to bundle them up and put them up as a, a collection? Um, I, I might do. I might end up re-recording some of the early ones. But I mean, now I've only got I've only got the last one to record, which is the Hog, <laughs> which which is is nearly near novel length, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not short. No. Um, well, yes, I'll probably, I'll probably do a complete collection at some point, I think. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>